Uh, you can be seated. Thank you, worship team. Happy Easter. Uh, really, really glad uh, that you guys are here. I was reading a, a story this week a about a little boy that was attending Easter services uh, with his mom when he began to feel sick. And he kind of tapped her on the shoulder and said, Mom, can we go home now? Can we go home now? I'm not feeling good. And she said, no, we're, we're in the middle of Easter service. We're not, we're not going to leave right now. We're, we're not doing that. And he said, he laid the kid card, I think I'm going to throw up. And his mom looked at him in the middle of the service and saw that he was looking a little peaked and pale. And she said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Go out the front door of the church, across the parking lot, and there's some bushes out there. Do whatever you need to do, and then, and then come back and, and find me. Uh, and he left, and about two minutes later, he came back. And his mom said, well, did you, did you get sick? And he said, I, I did. And she said, how did you exit this room, go across the parking lot to the bushes I described to you, kind of do your business and get back so quickly? And he said, great news. I didn't even need to leave the church. I found a box right at the front that said, for the sick. Um, and so, and I bring that up because I know a, a lot of people have, have been sick this spring. Uh, I've, I've heard the stories. We, my family has personally experienced uh, flumageddon. And so um, we're, we're glad to see so many people here for Easter. And uh, today we just want to celebrate, take a break from any drama with sickness or drama in your family or whatever's going on and just celebrate the resurrected Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together and start a new series today. Um, and just celebrate your resurrection and, and celebrate uh, your gift of salvation and grace. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We live in a country with honestly so many options. Think just for a minute about, about Easter and all of the Easter options that you have. You could go with your outfit and you could go pastel blue or you could go pastel pink. You could go Cadbury Classic or you could go Cadbury, uh, East, uh, Cad, Cadbury Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. You could eat in today. You could eat out. You could do a hollow chocolate Easter bunny, or you could do one that is rock solid. Uh, every once in a while, um, th these options overwhelm me. And every once in a while, um, Cheryl will ask me to grab something on my way home, to stop at a store and, and grab something. And she knows I always ask pretty much the same question. Is it more than six things that we need? All right. If it's more than six things that we need, I need to do a mobile pickup where I can walk in and talk to one person and take our stuff home. If it's more than six things, I am going to be wandering the aisles, freaking out, unsure about all of the options, uh, and calling her on the phone multiple times. I don't like shopping. And there are many reasons for it, but the number one reason is I find it overwhelming. Don't you sometimes? There are so many options for every product. And we live in a world with that many options of clothes and food and candy. And because of that, shopping has become a little bit of a mixed bag in the United States. I saw a study where they were studying men shopping on behalf of their families, and they were testing blood pressure. And they found, they found that the average male shopping it is a blood pressure you would expect to see in a man at war. 
This is serious. That's how high a guy's blood pressure gets shopping is what you would expect to see a soldier fighting for our country. Now, I know not everybody's overwhelmed by it. My wife, for instance, she actually enjoys shopping and looking through the products and and all of that. And I certainly think that you could make an argument that when you look at all of the options that we have, we certainly are blessed. But the truth is, with all of these options, sometimes we bring this mentality into the realm of the spiritual or even into the realm of our relationship with Jesus. We begin to treat Jesus almost like a Walmart superstore. And sometimes with Jesus, we feel like we're perusing the aisle, looking for the things about him that we like best. Like, man, I'll take a couple boxes of Grace Giver this week. It has been a rough week with my kids. I'll take Grace Giver, but I think I'm going to pass on the aisle labeled discipliner who loves me. Uh, I I think I'm going to pass on that aisle. Or I think I'll take a couple cans of healer because that's what I desperately need. But sustainer? That sounds hard, and I think I'll pass. Friends with Jesus sounds like a great place to shop, uh, but king, it sounds intrusive and overbearing, like he wants to actually affect something in me. And I think this comes from, as Americans, we have so many choices. And sometimes we feel like these different elements of who Jesus is, that they are like Jesus Christ Superstore, that we can shop and find the ones that we like Best, But I think there's also another reason for it is that all of us, as we stand at the empty tomb and at the foot of the cross this weekend, I think a lot of us, spiritually speaking, are asking the same question. Who is this man? We're we're trying to figure out who he is. John Ortberg said this, it is in Jesus' name that that, that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. Right? We're all trying to look at this man and figure out who he is. And that's what I love about this Jesus Christ Superstore series, is that's what this series is all about. We are going to look at Jesus, and we're not going to force ourselves to make choices about his different qualities. We're going to embrace them all, and we're going to look at who Jesus really is. And today we're looking at, I think a great one to talk about on Easter is that he is our Savior and he is our Lord. He is our Savior and Lord. You see elements of both of these throughout Jesus' ministry. You see him as Savior. One of my favorite stories about this is in the book of John, that Jesus is teaching and preaching, and they bring before him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and the whole scene is a trap for Jesus, right? The whole scene is a trap, and they say, hey, listen, in the law of Moses, it says this woman should be stoned. What do you say uh, we should do to her? And Jesus, in one of the most brilliant responses ever, he says, let whoever of you has no sin cast the first stone. You think she's so terrible? You think she's a sinner? Let whoever of you has no sin in their life, let you be the one to cast the first stone. And everybody just kind of sits there dumbfounded and unsure of what to do. And then Jesus bends down with his finger and he starts writing in the sand. And theologians throughout all the years, they have debated greatly what Jesus is writing in the sand. Some people think that he's writing a list of sins that the people in the crowd struggle with. 
Some people think that he's writing a list of names that the people in the crowd, that they had committed adultery, and he's writing the names of the people that they had committed adultery with. I have a little bit of a different theory. In the book of Exodus, when the law is given to Moses, God, it says, inscribed the law. God himself inscribed the law with his finger onto these stone tablets. I think Jesus, God in human flesh, is writing the commandments in the sand with his own finger one by one. And it is a reminder to this crowd, and it's a reminder to us on Easter Sunday, we have all messed up, we have all fallen short, but Jesus is a grace giver. Jesus is a savior. And he says to this woman, does no one here I condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Because of all the people that could have thrown a stone, Jesus was the one without sin. He could have thrown a stone. He said, hey, I condemn you neither. Go now and leave your life of sin. And in this moment, he's exhibiting this quality of savior, of grace giver, of the merciful one. Jesus is showing great grace. But you also see this moments, uh, these moments where you see his lordship and authority on full display. Early on in Jesus' ministry, uh, there are these friends that have a buddy that's been paralyzed. Uh, can't walk, and they hear that Jesus, the healer, is coming to Capernaum. And so they say, we got to get our friend to Jesus. Uh, And they find out that Jesus is teaching at this person's house, and they show up to the house to get their friend to Jesus. But anyone can heal our friend, it's Jesus. And they show up there, and the house is overflowing with people. There's no way in. And I love these friends so much because they look at their buddy that's paralyzed, and they look at the crowd overflowing the house, and they say, you know what we need to do? To the roof! to the roof. And they haul their buddy up to the roof and they start digging through this thatch roof in the Middle East. And Jesus is in the middle of a sermon. All of a sudden stuff starts falling down and every eye goes up to the roof. And there's these friends with their buddy and they lower him before Jesus. And Jesus stops the sermon and he looks at this guy and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And I kind of picture him looking up going, that's not why I'm here, Jesus. I can't walk. I didn't come here to hear a sermon about my sins, but Jesus knew what this man's greatest need was before even this man knew what his greatest need was. Before he would be healed of his paralysis, he needed to have his sins forgiven. The other thing Jesus is doing in this story is he is stirring the pot because immediately... The religious leaders say, whoa, 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 whoa. What did you just say? His sins are forgiven. And they say, no, no. Who can forgive sins but God himself? And sometimes I wish there were sound effects embedded into the scriptures because in that moment, here's what you would hear. (laughs) Ta-da. You are right. No one can forgive sins but God himself. Bing. Yeah, yeah, right. And so we could do this all day, right? We could see these qualities of where he exhibits as Savior and Lord throughout the New Testament. But I think we especially see it this weekend that we've been celebrating together. Holy Week weekend. We see him exhibit moments of grace, of Savior, and we see him exhibit these moments of Lord. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. There are probably these, there are probably these moments throughout the year that you love to lavish your kids with stuff. Their birthdays, Christmas, maybe Easter morning, maybe you sprung for the rock solid Easter bunny instead of the hollow one. Right? You're like, I'm going to lavish this upon you, this chocolate. I'm going to pay for it later, but I'm going to lavish you with kindness. A vacation. I always think my kids are like, man, we love vacation dad so much better than regular dad, right? Because on vacation, I just tend to be more lavish. I love how Paul describes the work of Jesus from the cross. He says, he lavishes us with grace, with mercy, with the forgiveness of sins. And two days ago, we could stand at the foot of the cross, all of us who are sinners, me, you, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can stand at the foot of the cross and just allow allow him to lavish us with his grace and his mercy and his kindness from the cross. But at the same time, he is a great grace giver and savior. But at the same time, the scripture says he is our Lord. Here's how Paul, who wrote Ephesians, here's how he says it in Romans 14. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. But whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that we so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So Jesus, I, I never understand this argument about Jesus, that he never claimed to be God. He repeatedly claimed to be God all throughout the Gospels. I told you one of the story, stories earlier, but Jesus, throughout his ministry, he would heal people or do a teaching and have an interaction with people. And it would be just like the story I read earlier, that, hey, hey, only God can do that. Only God can say that. Only God can exhibit these qualities. Only God can accomplish that. And so they would try to stone him and imprison him. And finally, they executed him on a cross. And here's the thing. Anyone can say anything about what they're going to give you. Anyone can say they're going to give you a million dollars or a lavish vacation or a brand new car. I could say that this morning. After church, see me. I'll write you a check. Anyone can say anything, right? But at some point, you're going to want or need or expect some proof, right? Some proof that that person can do the thing that they are promising to do. In Jesus' case, he proved it through the resurrection. And so we stand here this morning, we sit here this morning, and we peer into an empty tomb. And this is why this is so important, guys. When he says he can forgive your sins, the resurrection proves he can. When he says he can give you eternal life, the resurrection proves he can. When he says he can give your life meaning and fulfillment and direction, the resurrection 
proves it. This is why the song we sang is 100% true. This changes everything. It demonstrates his power, it demonstrates his authority, and it demonstrates his lordship. And George Wydell, the theologian, says, we really can't understand the power of the resurrection until we see the way the early followers of Jesus changed the world once they believed it. So you have these followers of Jesus that are scared and hiding and uncertain, and then the Holy Spirit comes and the resurrection, hap- the resurrection happens, then the Holy Spirit comes, and they are totally changed, life-changing uh, and, and impacting their world. So they believed, uh, for instance, that Je- uh, because Jesus was their Lord, that he gave dignity to all people. And so in the first century, the followers of Jesus, there was this dignity given to women that stood in contrast to all the rest of culture. They believed that Jesus was a healer. And so it was the early followers of Jesus who did this self-denying health care to people that suffered with the plague. Everybody else ran from them. Early followers of Jesus ran to them. They believed that Jesus was the center of the family. And so there became this focus on family health and growth and new life. They believed that Jesus offered hope for the future. And so they faced their own death as martyrs with great courage because they believed that death did not have the final word. Because they believed the resurrection, because they believed in the empty tomb, their lives changed, but the way they interacted with the world changed as well, and things have never been the same. He is our Savior, to be certain, but he is also our Lord. And when we talk about him as a Savior, let me just be crystal clear what I mean. When we say he is our Savior, we mean that in Christ, through his death, Our sins are forgiven, and grace is offered, and eternity is secure. Our sins that had separated us from God in this life and the next, they are paid for on the cross, and we are able to run to him, not away from him, and know him, and worship him, and follow him. When we talk about his qualities as Lord, here's what we mean by that. When we say he is our Lord, we mean he knows what is best, that he is on a throne king over all creation, that he is in charge of my life. And this is sometimes a turn that we miss. Sometimes when we look at God and we look at Jesus and we say, man, he is king over all creation. He is king over the world. He controls the universe. And we forget what that also means is he also controls mine. And he's king over me, that he's in charge of me. So when he commands, when he leads, when he calls, Jesus as Lord means I follow, I obey, and I go. Because he's not just king of the universe, He's king of mine. So, he's savior and he's Lord. And these are not separate qualities with which we get to choose like we're walking down a shopping aisle. Oh, I'll take a little bit of savior. (laughs) I'm going to pass on the Lord, I think, right? I'll take a little bit of savior. We don't get to do that. These are the same qualities of the same man. These are the qualities of his life. These are the qualities of the Holy Week that we are remembering. This is who he is. He's savior and Lord. And you understand this because you operate within a family. And you know with your kids and, and grandkids that sometimes you are disciplinarian and sometimes you are very generous. Sometimes you're very generous with your discipline, right? Sometimes both those things happen. And these attributes can be demonstrated in the same day or the same weekend. In the morning, you're rewarding them for a job well done. In the afternoon, you are dropping the hammer of justice, And because they are your children or your grandchildren, they most likely understand this. They get all the facets of you. They receive your generosity and your discipline, your reward and your rebuke. They don't really get to pick and choose like they're walking down a shopping aisle, uh, which 
parts of you they want to accept and which parts of you they want to reject, much to their dismay, you are you. Savior and Lord. It is who he is. Here's the other thing I would say. Sometimes we think we want these attributes separated. I really don't think we do. I don't think we want these separated at all because we need both of them. I don't know about you. I desperately need the grace of God. As, as Holy Week unfolds and we pay attention to the cross, I just marvel at what God has accomplished on my and your, and your behalf, the forgiveness he has offered, the mercy that is available, the peace that comes with God. I marvel at his grace. And while that is 100% true, I don't know about if this is true for you, it's true for me. I don't just want my sins to be forgiven. I do want them to be forgiven. I don't just want them to for, be forgiven. I want to overcome my sin. I want to live a different life. I want to stop my sin from splashing over onto my kids and splashing over onto my wife. I don't just need a grace giver. I don't know about you, but I need a Lord. I need someone who will lead me. I need someone who will guide me. I need someone who will set an example for me. I need someone who will empower me. And yes, I need someone who will command me. So we think we want them separated. If I could just get the grace giver without the Lord, it'd be good. We think we want them separated, but if we really think about it, we don't. Because we need both. And Jesus brings both. But the connection goes even deeper than that. The connection between Lord and Savior, the connection is so deep in the scriptures that it actually goes to how grace even comes to a person. That, that, that Paul is going to teach us here in just a minute. You can't separate these. They're, they're connected together. And, and, they, and Paul's going to teach us how grace actually even comes. Let me show you what he writes. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the promise, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? Jews and non-Jews, this is true for everybody. The same Jesus is Lord of all and richly blesses all, <coughs> excuse me, all those who call on him. And here's the promise. Everyone, I did a deep dive this week. The Greek means everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's break it down a little bit. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, all right? So you can start to see this connection between Lord and Savior. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, I don't know uh, the last time you saw baptism here, but this is embedded into the way that our church does baptism. So when a person comes forward and they want to be baptized, we ask them, before we baptize them, we ask them to repeat these words. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I make him my Lord and Savior. So foundational to the way that we do public baptism is this kind of moment of declaring with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. Because Paul understands, and we do too, there is great power in saying something out loud. I want you to think about when you were dating your spouse. And there came a moment where you started to realize how serious it was and how much you loved each other, uh, how, how much you loved them. And if you decided, you decided at some point to say the L word, the, the word love, and you were nervous and you kind of did it in a clunky way, but you were together and you said, hey, 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 I love you. 
And if the words that came back, if those words were, I'm very fond of you as well. (laughs) Or even worse, baby, I love you. Thank you so much for saying that. It is deeply appreciated how much you love me, right? If any of that happened, it is devastating because there is great power from saying something out loud. This is what our time together singing tries to accomplish. With the lyrics on the screen and the music playing in the background, we are declaring with our singing this truth. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is raised from the dead. Jesus is Lord. And most weeks, don't you need to come in here and say that out loud? Because maybe a situation is kicking your backside and you have felt like it has been Lord over your life all week long and you come into this place as a reminder that Jesus has risen from the dead and your circumstances are not Lord, he is. And there is great power in just saying that out loud because you've been internalizing, no, no, disease is Lord, disease is Lord. And you come into this place and say, no, disease is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Death is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Stress is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Culture is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Government, praise me to God for his undescribable gift. Government is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. So he says, we confess with our mouth. Because there's something powerful about doing that, about just saying it out loud when all of your circumstances have been kicking your backside all week long to say, no, 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 that's not Lord. Jesus who conquered the tomb, Jesus who conquered the grave, Jesus is Lord. So confess with your mouth. And then he says this, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So these are the two parameters. He said, believe, confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We just finished March Madness, and I stopped filling out a bracket for March Madness in 2015. And whenever I tell people this, they're like, you remember the year? I remember the year. Uh, My Spartans, my Michigan State Spartans, had had a really rough year that season. Uh, They were not, we did not feel like they were very, very good at all. I did not believe in them with my heart. And so we came to a bracket, And I had them going out like second round. They went to the final four that year. And I turned to Cheryl that year and I said, I will never do that again. And I never have. Because I've never filled out a bracket again. It's not not that I believe in my heart. It's that I refuse to do the bracket, right? But I think sometimes it's worth asking, do I believe in my heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead? Or... Am I an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus? A fan of him and his team? Or do I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead? A few years ago, Kyle Eidelman wrote a really great book that I would recommend to you called Not a Fan. And he was talking about the difference between someone who believes in their heart and an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus. And he says this, fans don't mind him doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking, oh, he'll tune me up a little bit. But Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required. Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them. Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. And I think sometimes in America, 
We tend to think about believing in our heart. We hear that phrase, do you believe in your heart? Like, God raised him from the dead. We, we tend to think about believing in our heart as kind of a mystical, emotional thing. Do I feel it? Do I feel like it's true? They would not have had that category in the first century. To believe something in your heart in the first century was to orient your life around it. To allow your life to be disrupted by it. That there was some quantifying and tangible way that you could say, yeah, I believe in my heart that Jesus raised from the dead. And here is the actual tangible proof that I believe that is true. And it makes sense, right? If Jesus rose from the dead that we're celebrating today, if Jesus rose from the dead, his claims about being God and human flesh are true. And that means we should obey him. He's God. He's not just a nice, charismatic leader. He's God. If Jesus rose from the dead, his promises about his power are real, and we should be encouraged by him. Right, man, our, our Savior conquered death. He conquered his grave. Someday he'll conquer ours. His Holy Spirit, the same power that rose from the dead, is at work in us. We come into this place believing the resurrection is true and thereby being encouraged by him that he will empower us to make it through any challenge that we face. If Jesus rose from the dead, his lordship is solidified and we should be worshiping him. I love listening to you guys sing this morning. I love that every Sunday. But there's something about it today. It's like, man, you might not know all the songs. You might not know all the words. But there's something powerful about, man, if the resurrection is true and he is king over all, how dare I withhold my worship from him? He is king and he is worthy of it. Of course we worship him. So Paul writes, to the one who declares with their mouth, to the one that believes in their heart that Jesus has raised from the dead, there's a promise attached. And Paul says it a couple different ways. All, everyone, and anyone will be saved. Here's the promise. When you put your faith into Jesus and you declare with your mouth and you believe in your heart, his grace available, his grace will be for you. His leading will be for you. His mercy will be for you. His new life will be for you. His Holy Spirit will be for you. And this has been my prayer all week long, is that every single person in this room, every person watching the live stream, that we would believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. We would declare it with our mouths that we believe it is true because the resurrection, it truly changes everything. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and for his grace. And as we get ready to receive communion right now, we just want to stand at the foot of your cross and at the, the mouth of the empty tomb, and we just want to marvel at what you have done. And we don't want to be a people that shop at Jesus Christ Superstore. We want to reject that mindset. We don't want to have that at all of like, man, I'll take a little bit of Savior, but Lord, that sounds intrusive and like, like you're going to change some things. We, we want to accept all of you. And right now, we want to declare with our mouths and believe in our heart that you've been raised from the dead. And we want to see, and we want to invite you in and, and see what you do. See the changes that you bring. See the new life that you bring. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to receive communion together on this Easter Sunday.
<coughs> and like I said, it's an opportunity for us to just marvel at what he has done, that he is our savior and he is our Lord. And it's not a choice we have to make. He's, he's already both. So we can accept him for who he is and watch the work that he does as he forgives our sin and leads our life. Uh, and so they're going to pass out uh, the emblems. You can hold on to those. Two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And just hold on to those and just marvel at the work that Jesus has done. And then I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you uh, that three days later, you conquered the grave. That you are our Savior and you are our Lord. We don't need to choose. You're both. And we thank you for being both of those things. May we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you've been raised from the dead. And may our lives be changed forever by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to uh, continue on in this series uh, next week, um, and we're going to kind of look at the idea. I was telling Scott this week that it was, it was probably like 20 or so years ago that I started to notice like a very familiar way that, that people would speak about Jesus sometimes, almost as though that he was their, their buddy, friend, co-pilot, that sort of thing, you know, give him a noogie, you know, sort of thing. Oh, Jesus, you know, you're funny. Um, and uh, that it was just super familiar. And then there, there was this other side where it was like this very kind of ornate, high church kind of thing, that they, the way that they would talk about Jesus. You know, I've told you the joke before about the guy that one time said to me, if the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Um, it was written in the 1600s, but well, okay, anyway, um, it's translated in the 1600s, that's okay. And so there, there's these kind of two, and it's like, is he our friend, like our buddy? Or is he our king? And what if he's both? What if we don't have to choose? What if he's both those things? Go ahead and stand. Let's keep singing together and celebrate Easter. Happy Easter. You have a great, great afternoon with family and friends celebrating the resurrection of our king. God bless you guys. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, Coming day, Jesus my.